You ever did a podcast before? Never done one. No. Done uh, lots of interviews and and that sort of thing, but never an actual sit down podcast discussion. So all right. Well, we feel this. we feel privileged to have you here uh, doing your very first podcast. We are on the beautiful campus of East Tennessee State University, and I am sitting with an assistant professor in the Global Sport Leadership uh, Doctorate Program, the great Dr. Adam Sayers. Welcome to the podcast, sir. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. I got my doctorate at East Tennessee State University, a uh, three-year program, online program, and you taught uh, one of those classes in the summer. What class is that? Uh, the early summer was the international model of sport class, okay. um, which is a field experience. That's when we take a trip overseas. International trip. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, my first year, we went to Germany and Amsterdam. And it was my first time meeting you. Of course, it was an online program, besides the fact uh, that we would meet in, in the summer and go on that international trip. Yeah. And... Right upon meeting you, you can you can get that you are passionate about the sport of soccer. Yeah. Now, Dr. Sayers, allow me to get my American ignorance out of the way early. <laughs> you know, soccer is known as the beautiful game. Uh-huh. And I'm saying, like, how beautiful is it if if they can run up and down for 90 minutes and nobody scores? <laughs> so, Dr. Sayers, I'm going to ask you, what is it about the sport that you and seemingly the rest of the world loves but us here in America haven't quite gotten yet. Like, what is it about the sport that, that reels you in? That's it. It's an interesting question. I think there are several layers to it mm-hmm. and several variables involved in an answer to that type of question. Obviously, as you say, it's, it's by far the most popular sport yes, globally. Um, countries, continents, millions and millions of people um, are huge fans of the game, play the game across the globe from the grassroots level up to the professional level and the international level. And I think it appeals to so many people in many different ways. Um, Speaking personally, I remember being first exposed to the game as a a young child. Mm -hmm. Um, It's you know, Britain or Wales, where I grew up, is is one of the is you know is one of the countries where it is extremely popular, yes. um, and uh, and it's by far the most uh, frequently played inside and outside of school. So we would play in school at PE lessons. There's local football clubs in every town yeah. um, for for young young players up to the senior level. So you're exposed to it everywhere. And there's, there's always an opportunity to join in. Um, and from the very first time I, I joined in playing the game, um, I absolutely loved it. And then um, from that, it's obviously very popular at the professional level yes. in Britain. There are, there are 92 professional clubs in England and Wales. Mm-hmm. Um, what type of lessons have you, you learned from the sport that you apply to who you are as a professor who you are as a a husband and a father? Like, what lessons have you learned from that sport? So in in terms of lessons from the sport, uh, I think think the way in which I'm about to answer that question, I think you could probably probably apply to several sports, several team sports. Mm -hmm. But the concept of um, learning to function as a member of a team, Mm -hmm. learning to appreciate what other members of team can bring to a collective effort, learning to appreciate what you can bring to a collective effort Mm -hmm. and a collective objective of, in soccer's case, winning the game, winning trophies over time, over the course of a season. 
building relationships, the social aspect I find very important in terms of building relationships. Um, and then obviously, as you say, that, that very much relates to how you build relationships outside of the game, be it in academics, a professional environment, a social environment, at school, at university, and then how you build relationships within your family. Um, so I think those types of lessons are, 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 have probably been most beneficial. The concept of building relationships and operating as part of a collective unit working towards a shared goal or a common goal i didn't really grow up with soccer as the main sport it was always about basketball and and american football and in 2014 the u.s men's national team qualified for the world cup and america seemed to get on board i was working as a limo driver then i remember telling the dispatcher do not give me a passenger during game time i'm gonna find me a nice restaurant in the city sit down and, and yeah. watch the game. You know, America was really excited about that run. Absolutely. What was it like seeing the energy in, in the country around that team and that run? It was fantastic. The, yeah, the 2014 World Cup was a, was a wonderful experience. I actually, it was in Brazil, and I actually went down to Brazil for the first two weeks of the tournament. Wow. Um, so we got to experience that World Cup in its in its host country, which was a, a wonderful experience. I had a good friend from Brazil who sort of led our group down there, there were seven of us. And we went to six games there. Um, but we watched the first USA game in, in a big fan zone mm -hmm. or, on the Copacabana beach, which was an incredible experience because we saw so many American travelers down there in Brazil. Right. Um, it, it, they were one of the countries that had the most traveling fans to come to watch them which that's a good measure of how popular the game is becoming in America, how many, how many fans from America travel to a host country to support the team. Yeah. And there were lots and lots of Americans down in Brazil. Obviously, America did really well. The fantastic performance, um, all the way through, fantastic performances all the way through the tournament, culminating that in that that Belgium game um, when Tim Howard Tim Howard was uh, was brilliant in goal. But if if I may take a bit of time and, and sort of add yeah. context to to that question yes. in terms of of the game growing in America and America's um, uh, performances in World Cups contributing to that. Mm -hmm. So the they, America do have some sort of sporadically historic results okay. um, throughout the history of the World Cup. The first World Cup was in 1930. In 1950, USA had a, an excellent tournament and a magnificent result. Um, but the game obviously was very much, still very much an amateur, right. amateur game in America and still in its infancy. Um, 1990, the USA qualified uh, for the World Cup, which was in Italy, Italian 90. Didn't do particularly well, um, didn't perform well in the group games. Um, but then in 1994, America hosted the, World, the Men's World Cup. Um, the, obviously, the history of the, the women's game in America is very different. I think right. we'd love to come on to that if we can later on. Um, but uh, the, yeah, 1994, the USA hosted the Men's World Cup. Part of the, um, the agreement that was struck with FIFA um, between the US Soccer Federation and FIFA was that if the hosting rights are awarded to the United States, then they would start, must start a professional league, okay. um, which, so the World Cup was in 1994, MLS started in 96 and has been growing ever since just at its 25th anniversary, the MLS. Um, but that World Cup in 1994 was magnificent. Obviously, there are, there, there are many, many things America as a nation are wonderful at. Yes. And putting on a show, 
um, collectively hosting a, a major tournament is one of them. Obviously, the stadiums are absolutely fantastic here. The infrastructure's there, yeah. the airports, the hotels, the transport systems. It's a wonderful place to visit. Um, obviously, the size was challenging for the players because you're crossing time zones to play games and you're going to get... While in America, you're playing on different coasts and different things? Yeah, yeah, oh, East yeah. Coast and West Coast. Yeah. So, so the, 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 the opening game of World Cup 94 was played in the Detroit Silverdome, mm -hmm. USA drew with Switzerland. The final was played in, the, in, uh, in Los Angeles. Okay, so yeah, zigzagging. Uh, Orlando Indeed. hosted, Dallas hosted, Chicago mm -hmm. hosted. Um, so the teams had to, to cross time yeah. zones um, and they had to uh, play in different climates. Obviously, the heat of it's, it's June and July, so the heat of Orlando is different to the heat of Dallas, is different to right. the, the heat of Los Angeles. So it was challenging for the teams in that regard, but overall, a, a wonderful event. Um, uh, the, it's still, if, I, if I'm speaking correctly, it's still the most attended World Cup even though at that point only 24 teams played in the World mm -hmm. Cup, currently uh, I think 32 teams play for the next World. Well, the next World Cup is in Qatar in two months. Right. 32 teams. Um, the 2026 World Cup is coming back to America yes. as part of a tri-host mm -hmm. with with Mexico and Canada. First time three countries have hosted the tournament, um, and there'll be 48 teams then. Wow. But up to this point, even though there are more teams now in the World that Cup, was the is most bigger now, that was the most attended because the stadium, uh, 1994, 94, right. because the stadiums were so big and it was so popular. So that that tells you that there was a passion for the game at that point, and there, there had been long before that. How did the American team in 2014 compare to that 94 team? Both did well, but the the, the key difference is the environments that those players and the teams that those, play, those players are playing in away from the national team was vastly different. So in the 1994 team, there are a couple of players in the squad that had European experience playing for professional clubs. Um, a lot of them had just played in the college system and in the amateur game in America. And right. then all of a sudden they're in the World Cup. And then, uh, but the, the, the 2014 team and indeed the 2022 team that, mm -hmm. that We'll, we'll, we'll take the field in two months. In Qatar, um, they're all playing in profession, professional yeah. clubs. Some of them uh, in other countries throughout the world, many in Europe, um, and many back here in the MLS, in the, in the domestic league. So they're all playing in professional environments. They're all playing um, with, with excellent players in very professional training environments, professional coaches, etc. So the, the, the program so, is a little bit more further along. We now have... Yeah. Uh, Americans who are playing overseas, mm -hmm. playing uh, big-time soccer, not just gentlemen who played college and found themselves on the world's biggest stage. Absolutely, yeah. So, and Dr. Says, what happened in 2018? You know, America, after 2014, we were excited. We thought we were a player in the, in the, in the global soccer game. Mm -hmm. We were on the upswing. And in 2018, the World Cup... America didn't qualify. Didn't qualify. The world had a had a soccer party, and America couldn't get past the velvet rope. Yeah. What was the reason for that? For the first time since nine since eighty six, I think they they qualified for every World Cup from nineteen ninety onwards up until two thousand eighteen, um, and obviously the qualifying campaign didn't go as planned because mm -hmm. um, obviously the plan was to qualify. The objective was to qualify. Um, the results were undecided right up until the very last round of mm -hmm. games in the qualifying campaign. Um, 
and there were three teams that could still qualify in that last place. Mm-hmm. Of the games that those three teams were involved in, there were 27 possible permutations of results. Mm-hmm. Only one of those 27 permutations of results across three games would result in America not qualifying, and every single one of those results happened. Wow! It was the 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 they hadn't played particularly well in in all the qualifying games. Some of them, them they had, some of them they hadn't, um, and uh, and when it came down to that last round of games, as I say, they were still favourites to go through. It was still unthinkable that they wouldn't qualify. But every single one of those results that had to happen for them not to qualify happened. So, so it's, it's kind of like bad luck? I think there's a, there was a, a huge element of bad luck in but it. But Dr. Yeah. says that bad luck is not going to happen to a nation like Brazil. They, they won't find themselves in that predicament. Is that fair? I would say Brazil will be... I think Brazil are the only team that have qualified for every World Cup. But no, it does happen. Italy... Italy are widely regarded as one of the most successful teams in soccer history internationally. Mm-hmm. I think they won four World Cups, Italy. Um, Brazil have won five. Uh, Germany, four. Italy, three or four. I'm not, I can't remember off the top of my head, but, but in that very small group of very successful football nations. And they haven't qualified for the last two. Mm-hmm. They didn't qualify for this one in Qatar and didn't qualify for the last one in Russia. In wow. between that, they won the European Championship. The European Championships is widely regarded as the second biggest soccer tournament in the world right. after the World Cup because right. Europe has so many strong countries. Italy are European champions, which they won in 2021 mm-hmm. and still didn't qualify for the World Cup in 2022. That soccer is, is, is played at such a high level across the globe now that those margins are very thin. Very so thin. so we, it was uh, disastrous for U.S. soccer right. and the progress of the national team that they didn't qualify, um, but not an irreparable disaster. It's an opportunity to, oh, wow. to, to grow out of that. So, wow. I mean, yeah, so it's happened before. Italy, hot, uh, the Netherlands didn't, haven't qualified for World Cups in the past. Again, you'd widely regard them as being... Uh, been a major nation. France, uh, the current holders, they won the World Cup in 2018 in, in Russia. Some recent tournaments they haven't qualified because for. Because Dr. Say is someone who is just casually observing, it looked like a disaster. It looked like perhaps uh, the national team may have dropped the ball at some point. But what you're explaining is that it happens. It can happen, yeah. It was it was it was a bad situation, but mm-hmm. financially as well, you know, the, the financial rewards of qualifying for a World Cup are very significant. Mm-hmm. The buzz that it generates, yes. the, um, the, the sponsorship that it can generate, the shirt sales that it yes. can generate. Um, obviously, there was an entire cycle where the U.S. missed out on that. Mm-hmm. So it took a financial hit in that regard. Um, and, even, and they would have been expected to qualify out of that qualifying group prior mm-hmm. to the start. They didn't, and it was bad, but not irredeemable and, and as we see they bounce back they've had the, the men's national team have had some excellent results over the last few years mm-hmm. winning the CONCACAF championship um, which is a difficult tournament obviously that's our region CONCACAF is, is the US is the, is the, the, the geographic region mm-hmm. soccer wise that the US participates in there's 41 countries in CONCACAF uh, USA, Mexico, Canada um, and a lot of the island countries okay. and Central American countries so uh, uh, and the, the CONCACAF tournament is, the, is like the European Championship, but for this region. Mm-hmm. So UEFA is the European region. CONCACAF is the North and Central American region. And they're, they're champions of that, U.S. now. When we traveled abroad, 
and I got to get on foreign soil and see how sport is done in a different country, it was an eye-opener to me. And one thing I learned about is something called football academies. Yeah. Where young athletes are basically groomed from a young age to play professional sport. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there really is no such thing as kind of high school sports or amateurism. If it, The community may identify you at 13 years old as somebody with, with uh, potential, and they'll send you to these academies. Yeah. And I remember when I came back, I started doing some research, and I wrote about one in France. INF Clairefontaine. You familiar with that place, Dr. Yeah, Says? Yeah, Clairefontaine, yeah. What can you tell us about these academies like Clairefontaine? Like, wh- what goes on there, and how does that differ from how these footballers are raised in America? So the there's lots of interesting points around this topic, I mm-hmm. think, that are relevant. Go for it. Relevant to our discussion. The, so Clairefontaine is the French National Federation headquarters mm-hmm. and training center. There's training pitches there, locker rooms, canteens, hotels, etc. Um, the vast majority of adv- quote-unquote advanced football nations have them. England have St. George's Park. Wales have Dragon Park. Um, we visited Amsterdam's. Uh, the Netherlands are... Yes, home. a KMVB campus. Yeah, yeah we visited that one. So that's, that's exactly right. That's the Netherlands equivalent. Mm-hmm. Germany has one. Um, Italy has one. So, so they, those are the headquarters of the of the national federation. So all the youth national teams and senior national teams will um, will will train there. Will uh, the youth teams will play there? Probably the senior mm-hmm. teams obviously play in, in the in massive stadiums around the country. Some countries have a, a specifically designated home stadium, like Wembley Stadium in England. Um, some countries will move the national team games around so fans in different parts of the country can can have the the, the privilege of attending. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Germany being an example there. So so um, them the. Their objective, their objectives are, are multiple. There are several objectives of, of those national team training centers. Um, as I say, developing youth national teams yes. and national team players, hosting coach education courses so they can develop the standard of coaching in the country for all the coaches that work with players from the, the, very, the, the most basic grassroots level. So it kind of be like that. a universal from the, from the top and training the coaches so they can go out in the communities and yeah. so, to kind of uplift the whole standard of football around the country. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So, so that would be some of the key purposes of those types of, of, um, of centers. Yes. When we say academies, you're typically referring to the academies of professional clubs, okay. which we, we visited um, Ajax in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. Um, fantastic academy. Uh, several Dutch clubs are, are very well renowned, renowned for de- developing youth players. The, the, the standard of football in Holland uh, and the quality of some of their most elite players that they've produced relative to their population is quite outstanding. Mm-hmm. Similarly in Belgium next door. Um, uh, and as you described, the academies, the purpose of the academies is to identify young players, bring them into the academy, and then, and then work with them on a daily basis. They're getting professional training yeah. at a young age. Wonderful facilities. What's a day like for them? Because they're still doing schoolwork also. That, they, they are doing schoolwork also, which has been a more recent development mm-hmm. because I'm going back decades now, but when, when clubs had 
youth teams. The, the concept of an academy is a fairly recent um, description or label. But prior to quote unquote academies, they still had youth teams. Right. Um, and then there was the, an overhaul and the introduction of academies. And, and as you say, the, the, the concept was identify the players at a young age, bring them into the academy and train them up through the age groups um, along that professional path, so to speak, yes. that professional line. So there'll be, you know, hopefully either full professionals that will play for that club or, or, or professional players that they can sell to other clubs. Right. Um, the education was only added to that after the start of the academies because okay. and, and again this is a this is a fascinating contrast between the united states and europe south america some of the other countries to, that dr say is when i saw this model it explained to me why america is far behind right their young athletes are identified from young and they're getting professional training they're getting meals they're housed they're safe yeah <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. The, no, we, no, we, you, that's why we're behind. When yeah. I saw that firsthand, Dr. Said, I'm like, oh, snap. Yeah. That's why we're not qualifying for World Cup. Right. The, uh, the, so there's an element of truth to that. The, um, we, they do have that now. The MLS clubs have academies now. Mm -hmm. um, they're not, not all of them are complete academies. Right. For example, Nashville is a fairly new addition to, to MLS, mm -hmm. an expansion team within the last couple of years. They only have youth teams at certain age groups. They're still considered their academy, right. but they don't have a team at every age group. Other teams in MLS have had academies for much longer, and they will have teams at every age group. Um, but again, relative to population, I think that the number of MLS clubs is in the, in the 30s. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned earlier, in, in England, England and Wales, there are 92 professional clubs. That doesn't include Scotland and doesn't include Ireland. Um, so compared to more traditional soccer countries, should we say, the, the number of clubs is less. Right. So the number of academy places is less. Um, but there is, what does exist in America is a massive club system, mm -hmm. so to speak, a club soccer system. And there are clubs now that exist in America that have grown into these sort of behemoth clubs with lots of players, lots of teams, lots of coaches. Um, problem, or key issue is it takes money to run those clubs and yes. clubs of that size. You've got to pay the coaches. You've mm -hmm. got to uh, upkeep the facilities. And, and, and these clubs are, you know, want to provide a high standard to their players. But that results in fees for players and families and again because america's so vast mm -hmm. there is a heavy travel commitment and a, and a heavy travel cost involved with playing for for these big youth clubs um but why are the families being asked to fit this budget in the in the international models everything is taken care of by the big club or the country no yeah 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 the clubs or the countries pay pay the majority of that yeah or all of that, yeah. So why in America, again, why in America are the families asked to, uh, I guess, carry the cost for the travel and, and the training and stuff? So then, just to clarify, they're not at the MLS clubs. Okay. Atlanta United, Nashville SC, Los Angeles Galaxy. Mm -hmm. All the MLS clubs that have academies do pay for They the pay players. for, okay. I'm talking now about the youth club system. Mm -hmm. So all the, the clubs in America that exist for players up to U18 or U19, that then when they leave that, they go into the college system or perhaps into the professional system. Why so doesn't the national clubs. team, the U.S. soccer, uh, invest in 
taking care of these individuals. They do. They do invest. Yeah. They do. They invest and they support. Um, but there's just so there are so many of them. Okay. There's so many players, which is good. It's good that yeah. so many players want to play, um, and it's good that there are lots of playing options for them. Right. Um, but and and US does support that. US soccer does support that to mm. the uh, to a good extent, to the best of their ability. Um, but that because, because there's so many, it's impossible to completely fund all of that. Right. So now it becomes a model where the players and the families have to fund it. Um, but what that has done has created what's known as a pay-to-play model. Right. So to participate now in youth soccer at a high level, if you're not at one of the professional academies, again, of which there's only 30-something, right compared to other countries where there's a lot more, which is purely just down to the number of professional mm -hmm. clubs that exist. There are less professional clubs that exist in America compared to other countries. The pay-to-play model is a result of that, mm -hmm. which now means to play at that level, to play in those clubs, there's a significant cost to families. Mm -hmm. And that can rule a lot of players out. For sure. I can't afford to participate. You can price out a lot of our athletes. Particularly in the inner cities. Mm -hmm. So that filters that then to the national team because... There's some some extremely talented athletes all over America, um, but those that grow up in poorer neighborhoods, perhaps some of the inner cities, some of the even some more remotely rural places yeah. as well, don't have the option to play in that way, yeah. and so they inevitably choose another sport. Yeah. There's a, a lot of street basketball opportunities, as you say, and 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 things of that nature. Yeah. So. So I, I do think America misses out on a lot of talented athletes that at that very young age where, um, as we talked about earlier, right. in other countries where soccer is by far and away the number one sport. It's mm -hmm. not even close. Here, there are so many choices. You know, foot, American football is very popular. Basketball is very popular. Baseball is very popular. Hockey's up there. Mm -hmm. Soccer's on that. It, soccer is extremely popular. There are lots of young players playing, but there's still lots of choices for young athletes in America. In other countries, that's not the case. Football, soccer, way out in front. Rugby yeah. and cricket, for example, in, in Britain and other and some other countries would, would be would be not even close behind it, really. Right. But but um, but still there is an option. But because the options are less, and you're exposed to football at every turn and at such a young age, the majority of athletes will turn to that sport right. in those countries. In America, that doesn't necessarily happen. No. So. So I, there are some areas of America and some demographics of American youth that don't have the same opportunities to participate and play mm -hmm. in soccer at the entry level and then all the way up that others do. Right. So that there are athletes that the game misses out on mm -hmm. because of that, because they, they don't have the means to participate and ultimately choose another path. Right. But I, I, when I, that makes sense. That makes sense. Because, again, when I, when I saw these academy models, I was truly impressed by it. Because there are so many kids in the inner cities who try to compete. They get priced out of different sports, and they end up losing their way, you know, because they just can't uh, keep up. I was looking at, again, the France uh, INF, Claire Fontaine, uh, one of the biggest footballers, uh, Kylian Mbappe. Yeah, Mbappe, yeah. He was a youngster in that academy. Mm hmm uh, France actually produced not only did they win the last World Cup, but they produced uh, 52 World Cup players in this last World Cup in 2018. You know, they had individuals not only playing for France, but playing for 
other countries. Yeah. I guess they would be born in France and they have citizenships in other countries. So France seems to be towards the top when it comes to this yeah. the soccer thing. They've developed a lot of players and produced a lot of players. The, to, to clarify what, what you're referring to there, the, so FIFA has a rule in terms of participation or representation of a, mm-hmm. of a, of a certain country. Um, and, and that goes back to grandparents. So you can, you can participate for a country that your grandparents may have a passport to. Okay. So uh, you, if your grandparent has a passport, mm-hmm. there are far more details to right. this rule. It's, it's, I'm given sort of a rudimentary mm-hmm. version. Um, but, for example, if your grandparents have a passport of a certain country, but you don't live in that country or weren't born in that country, or maybe their grandparents moved or your parents moved yeah. or you moved, um, you can still go back and apply for citizenship to, and, and apply to represent that country mm-hmm. under FIFA's umbrella. I, I, I use the term citizenship. I'm not sure if that's the correct okay. term to use. I'm not sure if you'd actually get citizenship to the country, but you would qualify to represent that country under FIFA's statutes. Right. I think there also rules exist for... Uh, if you live in a certain country for a certain period of right. time, maybe you were born in one country but moved as a young player, as a young person, and, and grew up in that country, you may still qualify to represent them as well. But, but as, the, as the world becomes more integrated and more mm-hmm. global, that happens more, and it has happened more over the last 30, 40, 50 years. Um, the, and obviously, geographically and politically, as the world has changed yeah. uh, in recent years, or geopolitically, should I say. Um, and, and some countries have separated, some countries have merged. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, that has changed the, the, the soccer global picture as well. Right. Um, so, uh, for example, Yugoslavia. Well, I think Yugoslavia were one of the USA's opponents in Italian 90, the 1990 World Cup. Shortly after that World Cup, the breakup of the Soviet Union, right. um, new countries emerged and therefore new national teams emerged. <laughs> yeah. um, up until the tearing down of the Berlin Wall, East Germany and West Germany used to compete separately. Okay. So West Germany won the World Cup in 1990. Mm-hmm. They were the last, that was the last tournament that, that, um, that West Germany participated in. East Germany still played, but they weren't as good and didn't qualify for these tournaments. So after that, now, after Italian 90, Germany unified, mm-hmm. and the 1994 World Cup in America, they played as Germany. Okay. Um, so, so that has led to, in, in recent decades, players being born in a certain country but representing another, another country. On the American national team, we have some gentlemen representing the U.S. but may have been born in other places, yeah. correct? Yeah. Everybody's excited about this young man. He was born in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Yeah. But he kind of got introduced to the game overseas too, no? Yeah, he spent time in academies abroad, yeah. His parents were in uh, England. Yeah, Chelsea. Yeah, he played uh, with Chelsea's academy. There's wonderful pictures of him as a, mm-hmm. as a youngster playing in, in Chelsea, obviously the Chelsea kit mm-hmm. in, in London. Yeah, so, and there, there are, um, yeah, as you say, several players now that, that play for the United States national team that were educated in other countries football-wise, right. whether they were born there and grew up there or whether they went there as a young player because the European academies brought them in. Mm. America always gets excited about their next soccer star. I could go back to Freddie Adu. They thought he was going to be the greatest. Can you put in perspective, like, how good is Mr. Pulisic when 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 he compares to 
American stars of past? Like, how, how excited should the country be about this young man? I think it should be very excited. He's mm -hmm. a very good player. Um, he's he's clearly shown that, you know, that it, both in his performances with, che with Chelsea, his performances with the USA, and with how he's been sort of remunerated and supported by Chelsea mm -hmm. with the size of his contract and the length of his contract. They obviously value him. Um, and he's, he's won the Champions League, the UEFA Champions League, which is the, 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 the biggest club competition in the world. He, mm -hmm. he's, he's won that um, with Chelsea. So he's, uh, he's been very successful. I think we can be very excited as a nation about Pulisic, as we can with several of the other young players there. Winston uh, McKinney's doing brilliantly. Mm -hmm. Weston McKinney, sorry, is doing brilliantly. Um, uh, in Europe, Gio Reyna, who is the son of Claudio Reyna, who played for the national team okay. um, in that in those early '90s teams, um, he's doing brilliantly. Plays in Germany, um, played for the for the national team this morning. Actually, they had a, a match this morning. Who's your so, favorite player in the world? My favorite player yes, of all time, or currently playing? Currently playing. My favorite player currently playing. I, I, obviously, Messi and Ronaldo, two very famous ones, yes. coming to the end of their careers. Mm -hmm. But I think Lionel Messi mm -hmm. is a is is a one of the greatest players to have ever lived. Um, I think if if Messi and Ronaldo had both existed in different eras, they would have each been unquestionably the best player of that era. The fact that they've their careers have have mirrored each other or aligned in the sense that they've been playing over the same period of time, they've pushed each other, yes. and they've both reached ridiculous heights of performance absolutely fantastic but i think personally uh messi, messi. is the better player and I, I would say he's uh it's it's important we we enjoy him yes. and ronaldo enjoy them and savor them while they're still playing what about all time favorite player all time all time uh i would have to say oh, it's uh i i'm a huge diego maradona fan okay now maradona obviously had his controversies. He passed away over Thanksgiving a couple of years ago. Yes. Is that uh, Argentina? Argentina, yes. yeah. A um, lot of controversies on the uh, off the pitch, um, but on the pitch, just an incredible talent. Mm -hmm. it, the Argentina won the World Cup in 1986 in Mexico, and he, he shouldered so much of that, um, led that team terrifically well, won that tournament in 1986. Um, incredible club achievements as well. So he's he's in that top bracket, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, top player. Mm -hmm. Yeah, global sport leadership program. It's about training young leaders. Uh, we we know about some of the names in America, people that get credit: the Michael Jordans, the Tom Brady's. What does leadership look like on the soccer pitch? I think. Conceptually, in a similar fashion to, to leadership in general, mm -hmm. it can be exhibited in different ways. Mm -hmm. Roy Keane is one of my all-time favorite players. Which country is He's Roy Keane? He's from the Republic of Ireland. Okay. Spent the majority of his career at Manchester United. Mm -hmm. um, was a, a key piece of Manchester United's resurgence back to being the most dominant club in the world, which, uh, sorry, in, in England. Um, and then in Europe from 19, uh, the early 90s, 1993, mm -hmm. through to 2013, 14-ish. Um, he was such a huge part of that progression for that club. Um, 
And also... In which ways? Uh, scoring goals? No, leadership. He was the captain of the club. And he was very much renowned for being a passionate, vocal, committed leader mm -hmm. that had very high standards. Uh, in a similar fashion to your understanding of Michael Jordan, which be, would be much greater than mine, right. much deeper than mine. Um, but I'm aware of elements of Michael Jordan's character that his teammates didn't necessarily like, yes. but realized that they were important to keeping the standards high. Yes, his behavior and practice, his attitude and practice. Um, and the results speak for themselves on the court. Mm -hmm. Similarly, Roy Keane, I think, was of a, was of a, of a similar vein. Mm -hmm. Extremely high standards. Um, not just in terms of football performance, but behavior, punctuality, mm -hmm. um, respect. And the manager or the head coach of Manchester United, Alex, Sir Alex Ferguson, uh, had some of those qualities as well. And Roy Keane was seen as sort of an extension of him on the field. So his leadership was of that ilk. Um, always demanded the same of himself that he demanded of others, consistently turned in very strong performances, high-level performances, extremely committed to every tackle, to every loose ball, scored goals as well. It's, he's, almost, he's almost viewed collectively in somewhat of, I'll use the term unfair, light now because most people remember him for his attitude and his commitment right. and his leadership which is which was magnificent but he was also a very very good player right. and that can get sometimes overlooked because of how influential he was as a leader mm -hmm. and as a captain so there's that type of leadership on the field um, another example would be say David Beckham a uh, very famous player, yes. very famous person. I only know Beckham because he came over here and played in the MLS for a little bit. Yeah, played the LA Galaxy, yeah. Um, has won championships in several different countries, England, Italy, France, USA. Um, and he was captain of England for a long, long time and captain of some of the clubs that he played for. But he was different to Roy Keane in his leadership. His was more of a lead by example. Okay. Again, consistent levels of performance. Um, the, the, his hard work, the work rate, excuse me, was exceptional, like Keane's, but, but Beckham wasn't necessarily as loud or as vocal as Keane, and he wasn't as, as tough tackling, so to speak. Um, but he, he consistently delivered high-level performances, and, and players followed that. So his leadership on the field was very effective, different to Keane's. Different, different styles. Yes. Different styles. Different leadership styles. Uh, Dr. Says, you actually coached women's soccer here at ETSU. Yep. You are the all-time winningest coach in ETSU women's soccer history. Yep. Uh, we talk about the Global Sport Leadership Program. Uh, you are an assistant professor. And part of the program, towards the end, each candidate is asked to participate in a defense where they have to defend their research. Uh, it's you in there. It's Dr. Brian Johnston. And one of the questions you guys ask is, how would you describe your leadership philosophy? And I'm sure my classmates will get a kick out of this because I'm going to ask you, Dr. Says, how would you describe your leadership philosophy? I think I trend very much towards a servant leadership mm -hmm. style and a servant leadership philosophy. I think relationship building is such an important part of leadership. Um, 
And through relationship building, you can form bonds and form understandings and learn about each team member, should we say, as a person. Mm-hmm. And I think that enables you to, A, serve them more effectively, mm-hmm. finding out what they respond to and what their objectives are. So if you as an individual have a certain set of objectives um, and I can help you mm-hmm. reach those within the framework of us collectively achieving our objective as a team, mm-hmm. I would describe that as servant leadership and I think that's, the, that's, I have found the most effective way for me to attempt to lead people. That's good, that's great. You get it. You get an A for that response, Doctor. Thank you, Doctor Ali. I appreciate it. <laughs> what do we know about the U.S. men's national team's coach that is going to be leading the squad in this 2022 World Cup? His name is Greg yep. Bahalta. Yep. American born. Yep. Played for the U.S. national team himself. Mm-hmm. What do we know about his qualities and skills and his, uh, I guess, abilities? as a leader and coach? I think he's excellent. I think he's, he's uh, as you say, he has the experience of playing in the U.S. national team. I think what's unique about Greg and his generation, the progression of the game in America that we recently described, uh, and I'll just use this opportunity to bounce back to the 2006 World Cup, which was also a very good one for the United States. Um, the World Cup was in Germany. Okay. USA got to the quarterfinal. We're unlucky to lose that particular match. Um, but again, that was another giant step forward for America on the world stage. Greg both grew up and played professionally and coached through this entire generation of progression. Okay. When, when he was a young player starting out in the game it was nowhere near as developed as it is today clearly a very talented player and his ability took him up through the levels into the professional game and into the senior national team um gaining an incredible amount of experience on the way uh and then obviously had a a very successful club career profession as a professional and then went into coaching and management on that side mm-hmm. and has now been afforded the opportunity to to utilize that experience and implement his ideas and philosophies with the senior national team. And I think the progression from when he took over to now speaks for itself because mm-hmm. obviously he took over when post-2018 right. when we hadn't qualified for a World Cup. So it was a, there was a significant amount of pressure on him and he's delivered. We've had some magnificent results over the last few years. Um, one, the trophies that we've, we've participated in, the CONCACAF Championship, etc. And uh, and now he, I think he fully deserves his, his opportunity to lead America into a World Cup. I so think you've seen great. his kind of fingerprints and his imprint on the program already? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, because there was, there was quite a lot of change that occurred after 2018, mm-hmm. um, both from a coaching standpoint, management um, of the of the senior men's national team, and uh, and obviously player turnover and, and player recruitment pool, and um, and he was responsible for a lot of that, and he led that operation. He led that sort of reemergence from the slump of 2018, and 
the results speak for themselves. So I think he's uh, he's very experienced. He's quite eccentric, I think. He's got quite unique personality, <laughs> okay. and I think you know some players respond to that, and yeah. it's clear that they do because the results speak for themselves. So we'll see. The last time the U.S. was in the World Cup, 2014. Yeah. They were led by Jorgen Klinsmann. Yeah. A German. Yeah. What did you think about the men's national team going to get a German to lead the American squad? It's it's an interesting one because the mentality, I think, generally of the American um, population, there's a there's a great deal of pride, yes. and rightly so, in being American, in representing America, um, and. So it's quite interesting when he was appointed. Clearly an incredibly successful player, mm -hmm. won the World Cup, played in other World Cups. For Germany. For Germany. Yep, yep. Um, played in that 1990 World Cup when they won it as West Germany. Um, played in the 94 World Cup that was here mm -hmm. and lived in California. So built a life for himself and his family in California. So uh, I think his son has been involved with the youth national teams as a goalkeeper. Okay. Um, so related a lot to the American people. So it made sense. It, it was a good appointment. I, it, it's, I remember the first time the English national team appointed a uh, quote-unquote foreign coach. Yeah. Um, and there was a great resistance to that, but it, it turned out to be successful, mm -hmm. um, relatively successful. Um, so I think it's a case of U.S. soccer just being professional, yeah. as they are, excellent organization. Um, and hiring what they considered to be the best person for the job. Yeah. And I think he, he I had, like that had a wonderful tenure. Yeah, he was great. But we've, we've seen that in other sports where other countries will go get American coaches. Like in the sport of basketball, yeah. Coach Calipari, I believe he coached the Dominican uh, Republic national team. Like they go get other coaches. So I was actually impressed when they went and got a a German. Uh, I know it ruffled a, a few feathers here in America. And Klinsman himself ruffled a few uh, feathers. For one, he wanted all of his American players. He felt they should be playing overseas yeah. in the top leagues. Yeah. That I can understand. And also, he, uh, he made a comment when Kobe Bryant was towards the twilight of his career, and Kobe Bryant was still given a lucrative contract from the Lakers. And Mr. Klinsman said, only in America does that happen, where you're kind of paying for some, somebody for past work. Oh. And this was around the time when Klinsman had cut Landon Donovan from the national team. Landon Donovan, who I believe has scored the most goals in U.S. men's national history. Like, uh, America kind of wanted like a, a sentimental pick for Landon Donovan and being on the team. Klinsman said, no, he's not good enough anymore. Yeah. You know, only here in America do you guys worship these stars and praise them for past work. And when I look at international soccer, the sport always is bigger than the individual athlete. But in America, it may be the inverse. We kind of do hold on to our stars too long, you know, past their prime. How do you feel about that theory? Is that, is that a fair assessment? I think so, yeah. It's, because um, even with Beckham, I remember Beckham... He kind of got shipped out of England, didn't it? Like, we, it, we're he done with you. He went to Real Madrid from Manchester United... Mm -hmm. Um, and then into the MLS. But in the MLS offseason, he would still go back and join okay. these massive clubs, AC Milan in Italy, PSG in, in France. So he, and you're right, those clubs wouldn't have signed him unless he could contribute on the field, right. and he did, and he 
uh, he still could and he did obviously so um, so it's an interesting one yeah I don't think you would see you would see that occur in certainly in European mm -hmm. soccer for example but I think Klinsman was just sort of switching gears on Klinsman's tenure he he was the head coach in the national team and then along that path he was also given the title of technical director okay and the tech, part of the technical director's remit is to oversee and drive football at every level. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and as you say, Klinsman was very supportive of players going to play in Europe because mm -hmm. you'd be playing the top clubs, you'd be playing in the Champions League, you'd be playing for and against the best players in the world. Right. And he, he felt, I think, that that would make the US players better, so he encouraged it. Um, as technical director... He attempted to influence the youth system and the path to the professional game. Uh, and I, th I think he met some resistance in that. Mm. Um, and the, it's an interesting one because there are, as with any debate, there are, you know, there are different parties, there are different points of view. But the role of the NCAA as a, as a pathway to the professional game can be argued that, that for that that elite 0.5% of men's soccer players, mm -hmm. the NCAA is detrimental. Wow. Because, um, and I, again, to repeat for context, we're referring to men's soccer. Yes. And we're referring to, let's say you have... The, the players we, we talked about that are, that are currently playing in Europe and came up through the academy systems in yeah. Europe... Uh, Pulisic's etc if you if Christian Pulisic has been at Chelsea's academy for several years and he's 18 years old mm -hmm. and he signs a professional contract with Chelsea um, or could be a German club Gio Reyna at Borussia Dortmund for example the if they sign that contract at 18 and begin playing for the first team at 18 in some cases they play earlier 17, 16 if they're good enough Arsenal in, in England last week played a player that was 15 years and 181 days old, wow. 15 and a half years old, playing for one of the biggest clubs in Europe. But let's hypothetically say 18. You sign for a team at 18. The, you could, the Premier League in itself has 38 games a season. Mm -hmm. There's also the cup competitions, the FA Cup, the League Cup, and then any European competition a team may be involved in the Champions League. If a, if a team, Liverpool, I think it was last year, got to the final of three of those cups, Champions League final, FA Cup final, League Cup final. Yeah, so we were just discussing the, the sort of hypothetical example of a, of a player that signs a professional contract at 18 years old, right. the age that they would go to college with a, a professional team. Um, if the player could potentially, well, so let's say this, a player could potentially then play, there's all the league games, FA Cup, League Cup, mm -hmm. Champions League or Europa League if they're in European competition, as Chelsea, Chelsea typically are. That's sort of potentially 60-ish, 50 to 65 games per season that that player could potentially play in. Mm. At the NCAA level, you're allowed 20 games per season. That's it? That's it. And that includes pre-season games, and you can choose <laughs> how you structure that. You could do 2 and 18 or 1 and 19 mm. Um, and then, then you have your postseason. So that's regular season. So even, let, we'll take the ACC. 
brilliant men's soccer conference, yes. right? A lot of good teams. You play the full regular season, that's 20 games. Some of those games are going to be against very good opposition, which is other, 18, other ACC teams. Still 18 to 22 years old, the players. Um, then you have the postseason, however many games it takes to win the ACC tournament, should we say, maybe three or four. And then the national tournament, I think will be a maximum of six, maybe. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at maybe 30 games in the spring, in the fall. And then in the spring, you're allowed at Division One level, you're allowed a maximum of five dates. Mm -hmm. You can choose to play five 90-minute games. You can do, you can enter a tournament for a day, so you play more over, right. the, over the course of a day. But you're only allowed that many competitions in the spring, five dates of any type of competition. So even, we'd say, 35, not all of which are going to be against high-level opposition, right. and certainly not the level you'd be playing against in the Bundesliga or Serie A or the Premier League. And then you times that by four mm -hmm. before the draft. If you play four years of college and then enter the draft, then that... A play, an NCAA player may play 120 games in four years right. against college opposition. A player that signed a professional contract at the age of 18 could end up playing in that same four-year period, maybe 200 games right. against quality opposition in a professional environment in front of big crowds that more closely represents what they'd be facing when they play for the U.S. national team, for example. For sure. So if a player has that choice at 18 to go to college or to sign a professional contract, mm -hmm. you could argue that for, from a playing standpoint and gaining experience and developing quicker, it may be better to go the professional route. Mm -hmm. um, and again, to, to say for context, obviously the NCAA as a concept is brilliant because it gives you this platform to play collegiate, play sports, um, across that age bracket shall we say versus let's say you leave high school and you don't go the NCAA route right. or you don't you, you choose to go vocationally um, then you perhaps wouldn't be playing any of those sports at that level with that that degree of organization that you get at the mm -hmm. NCAA um, so it's wonderful in that sense that it, it gives players the opportunity to utilize athletics and sport participation as a vehicle to get an education to develop them as a professional in another field yes you referred to the life lessons you can gain from sport um and utilize in other fields classic uh, student athletes ncaa student athletes are getting that experience mm -hmm. all the way through their education as well um their college education the um and then obviously in the major professional sports which is, which is, which Bad. is really at the centre yeah. of it, like the basketballs and the and the the American, football. the American footballs and baseball. baseball. Yeah. Play in college, go through the draft system, go on to the next level. Right. Um, which obviously the NBA is the best basketball league in the yes. world. The NFL is the best fo American football league in the world. That's the accepted pathway and the traditional pathway. Mm -hmm. And obviously, soccer as a member of the NCAA is modelled on that. Um, but the. The argument could be made that, again, in the sport of men's soccer, for that elite group of top, top players, mm -hmm. it can be potentially detrimental to their career because the players entering the professional game at 22 years old after college would be significantly less developed than players that have been in the professional game already for four years. Right. 
Um, we talk about Pulisic. He was in, uh, was it Dartmouth? I forgot how to pronounce it. He's been playing Yo, pro overseas since he's been on 16. Yeah, 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 absolutely. In, in, yeah, in Germany. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, Borussia Dortmund. Yeah. And so, um, so the, and I think Klinsmann was trying to make that argument. Yeah, yeah. To, and, and there's validity to it, mm -hmm. I think. Um, obviously, there are reasons why it exists this way. Yes. And the, the objective of, the, the objective of an entity at the head of an organization, a, a sporting organization like a, a soccer federation, um, their objective is primarily to develop players for the senior team and have a successful senior team. Mm -hmm. The objective of the NCAA is not that. No. The objective of the NCAA is to provide a platform uh, and, an, an, and participation opportunities for student athletes while they gain an education. Mm -hmm. And then for the 99.9% .9 of athletes that don't go professional, sure. it's a fantastic experience because they leave with a degree, they leave with four years of fantastic experiences playing memories friends etc um, and then many of them will still go on and have a professional career but in terms of that top top elite group in the in men's soccer that um those paths are very different yes. in terms of the, the crucial periods of a professional career from the age of 18 to 22. If, a, if you say a full professional career lasts maybe 12 to 15 years, mm -hmm. in some cases slightly more, that's four years out of 10 to 15 years. It's a significant chunk of that career. Mm -hmm. um, and those paths are very different. The NCAA path versus the professional path. Yes, now, now the, you know, it's important we add the context here. There are very, many, many excellent players who are performing brilliantly in the international game and the professional game that came through the college system. It's mm -hmm. an excellent system. Mm -hmm. um, but it is different to the path of a, of a professional player in other countries. Yeah. And I think Klinsman was, uh, had certain views on that and, and, and as, role of, as his role of technical director mm -hmm. started those discussions, mm -hmm. I think. Um, but it's, it's such an immovable object, I think, if you like. Doctor says you're from Wales, yeah. correct? Yeah. Did you play NCAA soccer? Yeah. You did? Mm hmm You played as a youth growing up in Wales? Yeah. And then you earned yourself a, a college scholarship here in America? Yeah. Why did you choose that path? The, so for a couple of reasons. I'd never been to America before, and I'd always wanted to go. Okay. I was fascinated by it. The, <laughs> I used to, uh, this was pre-internet, right? So I moved here in 1996, okay. August 1996. And it was pre-internet. Okay. So I just used to go to the, uh, you remember the old travel agents where you go to yeah. book like a vacation sure. and there'd be all these rows of books and magazines. And pamphlets and everything. And yeah. I used to go and get all the American <laughs> ones and take them home and look at the pictures. But it was always, it was tourist places, yes. you know. You, New York City was in there, Boston was in there, <laughs> Disney parks in Florida and California, um, the, uh, the national parks, Yosemite and the like, uh, the beaches, the Florida beaches. It was those type of those types of things. I knew, I knew some people who traveled to America on like vacations and stuff, but we, I'd never been. Um, that's one of the reasons I was so fascinated with the 1994 World Cup when it was held in America. Okay. Um, none of the British home nations qualified. England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland didn't qualify. The Republic of Ireland did. And so when 
when the team that you would support in that World Cup is removed, yes. you end up following it more as a neutral and more just, just for the spectacle of the tournament. Right. So you end up, I found myself rooting for the USA team. And okay. again, we, we, we're sort of overlapping topics here, which is great, but um, they had a great tournament that, uh, that World Cup. Okay. Lost to, on July the 4th, lost 1-0 to Brazil in the quarterfinal. Brazil were the eventual champions. They had some of the best players in the world at that time, Romario, Bebeto. I would put Romario in, in my, uh, my list of favourite okay. players as well, Brazilian Romario. Um, USA lost to them 1-0, uh, but, but did the country proud. Obviously, there was tragedy slightly earlier with the Andres Escobar situation. So I don't know if you've ever seen the, the ESPN 30 for 30 called The Two Escobars. Yes. Brilliant, brilliant show. Certainly recommend that. But... Um, but so I was That's when a uh, young footballer was killed for scoring an own goal? Yes. Okay. Yeah, they, the, the story is they weren't related, but it was right. like 12 days later. <laughs> right. And yeah. that own goal was against the US. Okay. They beat Colombia 2-1 in one of the group games. Um, obviously, massive achievement for America to qualify out of the group and mm -hmm. then play Brazil on this stage. Um, and it was that kit they were wearing that you're wearing now, that's sort of iconic uniform. Oh, yeah. And... Um, <laughs> uh, so I'm sat at home as a 16-year-old at yes. this point, just watching, because obviously the time difference, the games were on quite late at night. I stayed up every night to watch every game. <laughs> BBC and ITV are the two channels that broadcast the tournament, and they both had amazing entrance music with these, these with that tune, I Like to Be in America from West Side Story. That was what the BBC okay. used as their theme music with all these <laughs> images of America, and it was amazing. I loved it. And I always dreamed of going. And then this opportunity came up, um, I, uh, so I was aware of this concept of, 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 of college, of college yes. and of, of college sport and of scholarships. And, uh, um, and I was, you know, I, I was playing youth football in Wales, right. doing okay. And, uh, and so I remember, again, pre-internet, no email, <laughs> no websites, nothing. So I ended up, my mom helped me get this book from, which basically just had all the names of addresses of colleges in it. Yes. And there was another list she obtained, which was uh, basically a list of all the men's soccer programs in America. Now, there's companies even then that provided recruiting services, okay. but we, had, we couldn't afford one. It was a couple of thousand pounds and it was, we didn't have that money you know, to spend on it. So, uh, and now there's loads of them out there. So I was just, I was handwriting letters. Wow. And I was just, I didn't know the geography of America as anywhere near as well as I do now. Right. I certainly wasn't aware of Tennessee. <laughs> and uh, I was literally opening this book and blindly picking, picking a college and reference, referencing it with this list of men's soccer programs mm -hmm. and writing them a letter and sending them newspaper reports and all this sort of thing. And, uh, and the, the college is 30 minutes from here, Greenville, Tennessee. They were the first one to call me. After that, there were several others. A guy came over from Nebraska... Um, but uh, this college in Greenville, Tennessee, Tusculum College, it's Tusculum University now. Okay. They were the first one to contact me and stayed in touch, and all through the process they were communicating brilliantly, and I ended up going there, Wow! and it was a life changer. Yeah. What division is Tusculum? Division 2 now. Division they were two. NAIA at the time. Okay. So my, in the late 90s, I think it's my sophomore year, was independent because you had to have an independent year yes. during the transition. And then my junior and senior years were NCAA Division Two, and then Division Two now. How how would you describe your career? How'd it go? It went great. I had a wonderful time. Mm -hmm. The 
I mean, that, it was a bit of a culture shock. It's, Greenville, Tennessee is not... It wasn't like the pamphlets and the, exactly, the flyers. It's not the America portrayed on TV and film, you <laughs> right. know what I mean? But it was a wonderful experience. We had, we had players on our team from all over the world, locally and internationally. And uh, it was a, a wonderful experience. And what did your friends play. back home and family think of you going to go play football in America? Yeah. It was unheard of at the time. <laughs> I'm sure. And the, the stereotype still was that it, it, it was America and they're not a good football country. Right, right. I knew, having watched the World Cup in 94, and even I remember watching the team in nine, the, the senior team in 1990, um, the women's game at that point was, was emerging in America. I've always been a, a world leader mm-hmm. in, um, in the women's game back-to-back world champions as they are now, 2015 and 2019. Um, so I knew from, from just from devoting time to learn about it as much as yes. I could that it was a football country mm. and it, it, there's a massive uh, passion for the game and, and support for the game um, in, the con- in this country. And plus couple that with the opportunity of going to America, right. the opportunity to get an education, mm-hmm. um, I potentially could have stayed in in Wales and attempted to to play semi professionally or professionally, right. um, but the chances of that stacked up against the opportunity of coming here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it became a no brainer for me, mm-hmm. and I jumped on that opportunity to come out to, to Greenville, Tennessee. Wow, wow! Yeah. Speaking of the women's game, you know, I go I referenced that uh, my first time meeting you was on an international trip. I saw your passion. Uh, I said, Dr. Says, you know, you're from Wales. Football is a big deal over here. Like for you to be so passionate and be here in America, that's that's got to kind of be like a drag with, with this soccer. You said, not at all, Holly. I work in women's soccer. We are the best in the world. At that time, well, you had already been the, the, the winningest coach in ETSU women's soccer history. And you also have a role with U.S. women's soccer team. Yeah. No? Yeah. What do you do there? Um, so with the youth women's national teams, mm-hmm. I work as a sports scientist, um, and I've uh, so my my PhD is in sports science. Mm-hmm. My master's is in, in sport management and sports science, and my PhD is specifically sports science. And uh, from 2015 onwards, I've I've served as a sports scientist for the for the youth women's national teams which is um it, I, it's been an incredible honor it's 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 an honor because i'm going to just tie it into our last discussion the the sitting during that world cup i keep pointing at your jersey because I, I love it it's like what year is it again 90 1994 94 world cup jersey <laughs> sitting in my house in wales watching the u.s team in that world cup and being so inspired to get to America, to work to get to America, and being inspired by that team and those players and by this federation, to then be in a situation where I can give back to that federation and I can serve them mm-hmm. and help these generations of players come through those youth systems and then go on to a professional career or go on to a senior career is, is the ultimate honor. It's an incredible honor in itself and a pleasure um, but when I think of it in that context, that I'm able to give back to the federation that was so inspirational to me, mm-hmm. is a 
is an absolute dream. So I've been I've been with them since 2015. I've worked with every age group at some point, from under 15s up to under 23s. Actually, we just returned from the under 20 World Cup in Costa Rica okay. uh, last month, which again was a fantastic experience. Talk to us about that trip, Doctor Sayers, and, and, and sports science specifically. What describe some of your duties? What are your days like with these young athletes? So, so it it's centered around everything physical. Mm-hmm. So, on camp. And in tournaments, um, we we monitor the players as much as we can and communicate with the players as much as we can in terms of getting feedback, uh, physical feedback and physical monitoring uh, data from mm-hmm. them. So, um, so each morning we ask the players to complete uh, wellness questionnaires regarding physical and, and and psychological well-being. Basically, how are they feeling? Mm-hmm. Um, are they sore? What are the sauna sites, um, and 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 the how are you feeling from? Uh, did, what was your your quality of sleep? Uh, your amount of sleep. How are you feeling from a stress standpoint, etc. So data points that we can collect, um, sort of between myself and the medical staff, analyze and provide any pertinent feedback to the player that can help them uh, perform better and Get an feel edge. better in yeah. our environment. Um, once we start training, we monitor everything they do. Uh, with tracking devices, so heart rate monitors and GPS uh, devices, and it gives us lots of metrics that we can analyze their performance and, and analyze the training session itself and give feedback to the coaching staff so they can plan uh, plan the, the sort of uh, um, the following training sessions and the following matches. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then um, and obviously you know provide feedback to the clubs and the colleges uh, in which the players, the environments in which the players are in away from our from the national team setup um and then uh how does we, your leadership skills and training impact this role how do you utilize those skills in this role so i think in several ways initially i'm a i'm a member of the staff the mm-hmm. overall staff as a technical staff which is the coaching staff the head coach two assistant coaches goalkeeper coach usually um and then there's a medical staff uh, team doctor on international trips and tournaments at home. Um, athletic trainers always with the team, so I work very closely with the, the medical staff. Um, and there's a there's a a, a broad group of, of um, support staff who are all excellent at their roles: um, videographers, coordinators, um, wonderful elite professionals. And when you function as part of a team in that regard then those leadership skills become, become very important. How, how do we best utilize all of our individual qualities and expertise and synergize them to, to best serve the group of players that we have, to best serve the national team program and ultimately best serve the country, essentially. Yeah. That's what we do when we go overseas and we compete. We're yes. representing the United States of America. We're wearing the badge. Yes. Um, and it's, uh, it's uh, an incredible honor to do that. It's, it's very humbling. And then, then likewise, in, so I mentioned servant leadership earlier. Yes, sir. So again, I, I tend to adopt, uh, adopt that approach, uh, approach sorry, um, and, and serve that group as much as I can, serve the head coach, serve all the other members of staff in the best way that I possibly can. And conceptually, likewise for the players how do i within my role within that staff how do i best serve the players Mm -hmm. so they have the best platform that they can go out and perform to their absolute maximum um so they can achieve their objectives which is is to 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 play well individually to win the game for america collectively and then ultimately longer term 
go on to a professional career and a career with the senior national team. Dr. Says, it's interesting that you speak about being a leader in terms of, I guess, being a team member. You know, you explain that I'm a part of a team, but I can still be a leader in my role as a member of the team. Being a leader doesn't always mean being on a pedestal or being higher up than uh, other people. So that is uh, a yeah. very interesting to hear you say that. I would agree, yeah. Now, doctor says, I got, I, I got to ask. The women are out there winning World Cups. The men didn't qualify for the last World Cup. It seems to be a big gap and divide uh, when it comes to the success of how the women conduct themselves and the men. You know, why is that? I think there are sort of, again, multiple layers to that. The Title IX, initially, we can go, go back decades to the introduction of Title IX, mm -hmm. that um, in America, amongst other things, attempted to equate uh, or provide equal opportunities for females to participate in sport as much as males. Yes, sir. Um, and that obviously opened a lot of doors for, for female athletes that weren't necessarily open in other countries at that time. Mm -hmm. So if you couple that with the population of America and the facilities in America and the climate in America that would enable an outdoor sport like soccer to be played yes. so many months out of the year, right. um, then, then, uh, then that is a good platform for players to be exposed to the game, to participate in the game from a young age and to develop up. Um, we have some, some fantastic women soccer players in this country, fantastic athletes, fantastic people, fantastic players. And uh, there are also some fantastic, excellent female coaches um, in this country that serve as role models for those players. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think through a combination of these factors and others, the American game on the female side has, has progressed and progressed and, and continued to evolve. Um, because I th the, so the America won the World Cup in 1991. Women, yes. Women, yep. which didn't have anywhere near the exposure it should have. Okay. But now, retrospectively and historically, we can certainly celebrate that victory. Massive victory. Um, 1999, obviously, is quite a famous one. The group of 99, as they call them, which was the squad. Is that Mia Hamm and yeah, Brandy Chastain? That's right, yeah. But in America, we hosted the tournament. Uh, final again in Los Angeles and California. Um, the crowds that we were getting to those games is, um, is, is brilliant, mm -hmm. wonderful to see that we were getting them even back then. And obviously, that's the famous penalty shootout win in the final. Yeah. Um, the Sports Illustrated cover of Brandy Chastain is um, an incredible achievement to, mm -hmm. to win that tournament. Um, and I think the standard of the game in America contributed to raising the game globally. Okay. Because now other countries started investing more in women's soccer um, and got the results accordingly. Mm -hmm. So the Scandinavian teams were excellent, Norway, Sweden. Um, then uh, the Asian teams, Japan are excellent, China, fantastic. Uh, and then in mainland Europe, some of the traditional men's soccer powerhouse countries 
also developed excellent women's teams yeah. in their own right. Uh, the German women's team, fantastic. So then there was there was a question now. Uh, America has raised the bar yeah. globally. Other teams are now competing and winning tournaments. Yes. Can can America then evolve and kick on and stay ahead of them? Yes. Um, and obviously there were some World Cups after 99 that were won by other countries. Mm -hmm. But then America evolved, continued to grow the game, continued to develop world-class players. Um, and then in 2015, won the World Cup. And in 2019, retained the World Cup, which is incredible achievement. Uh, and obviously within there, winning several Olympic gold medals as well. Mm -hmm. The Olympic women's tournament is, is an excellent tournament um, up there with the World Cup in terms of the quality of that tournament. Um, and America have a have a sort of a history of success and uh and they continue to maintain that and it's incredibly impressive and it's it's a it's an honor and it's uh it's humbling to be to be involved in some way yeah. with that obviously the um i know some of the staff that work with the senior team and they're literally the world's best at what they do yes sir um ellie mabry is a sports scientist um who i've had the pleasure of working with um several years uh it's interesting you say that you know uh america they kind of led the way and it kind of forced other countries to now embrace the women's game and start to build up their yeah. teams you know you started off with title nine you know and we had opportunities in this country that maybe some other countries didn't give to their women you know there's some places where women can't even walk into a stadium to watch a game you know so that is uh Kudos to the American women. You know, that's uh, great that they've been able to kind of elevate the game around the globe. Dr. Says, uh, your class that you, you taught when I was in the program, uh, you gave us a book to read. Remember that book? I think so. I think it's... Uh, Franklin Ford's book? Yes. Yeah. What's the title of that book? Uh, how Soccer Changed the World. How Soccer... And How Soccer Explains the World. Yes. Yeah. How Soccer Explains the World. Uh... Why did you choose that book? I think it's it's an excellent text in terms of um, in terms of its its explanations and its anecdotes. Some of them are anecdotes, but it's it attempts to create a picture of a global sport like soccer. Mm -hmm. And how it exists differently in different parts of the globe. Right. And clarifies, if that's the best word, the um, some of the external variables that impact the game in those countries mm -hmm. and what's unique about them. And which is a, it's a key theme for our program, as you remember from the trips, mm -hmm. when we go on these trips, it's a 12-day trip, there's, there's no sort of official uh, sort of numerical um, uh, numerical sort of tags to these. I'm just going to give, give a, a rough example. But what we shoot for is about 75-25 or 80-20 sporting exposure and experience. So we'll yeah. visit clubs, associations, mm -hmm. um, sporting entities and then about 20 to 25 percent cultural so yeah. of the countries that we visit what can we learn about that country itself um and the history and the the political aspect um the and how does and then 
look at the crossroads. How does that impact sport? How do they impact each other? Um, and I think the book does a, a very succinct job of doing that for various places around the world that we we obviously don't visit, yes. um, showing us football and culture and culture, yeah, yeah, and does a does a, a <laughs> good job of explaining that. It could do with an update. I, 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 I think the that so much has happened recently that it, it would be a, there'd be some good additions to that the concept of that book. It, it does but, do a good job of bringing together the sport and the culture of different places around the globe. Again, me, somebody who is just a casual observer of the sport. I really enjoyed uh, reading it. Uh, it gave me a good understanding of how different aspects of the sport are viewed around the globe. And one part that really caught my attention, hooliganism. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Sayers, this seems to be a part of the soccer culture. You know, intense fervor for their, 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 their teams, you know, intense fandom that spills over into violence sometimes. What can you tell us about hooliganism? Yeah, it's, uh, it's got a very dark history. Yeah. The, in Europe and in England specifically, I think the darkest days were the 80s mm -hmm. um, and the early 90s. But you're right, it still exists today in some form. Just fighting in the stadiums? Yeah, it, I think what initially began as just fighting in the stadiums over allegiances to certain mm -hmm. teams quickly grew much more quickly than the authorities could, could keep up with. Um, it grew into something much bigger to the point where the, the association with the teams became a vehicle for the violence. Right. The, and so there would be... Um, you would follow a particular team, not necessarily just because you liked that team or you were from that area or you, you wanted to follow that team's results. That was part of it. Mm -hmm. Whereas previously, that's the only reason you follow a team because you support them. It, you would, there were sort of hooligan gangs and firms that, that were created. Around some of these teams. Around the teams, yeah. So... Um, West Ham's firm or Millwall's firm, these London clubs, and and there'd be organised meetups when once they would ha the fighting would happen in the stands, mm -hmm. and then policing would improve so they could never quite eliminate, but certainly deter and contain that. Uh, so they did things like put fencing up mm -hmm. in the front of the stadium to stop fans getting across the field, onto or across the field. They put fences up between the sections of supporters. Um, they would try and keep the away fans in one fenced-in section of the right. stadium, and this was the home fans. Um, so there was, there, was the, there was no integration of fans. Um, when that was the norm I grew up with. I remember when I moved to America, and we went to like a Tennessee football game, and there were... Soccer or American football? American football, okay. Neyland Stadium. Massive, wonderful experience. That was, they were a brilliant team back then. It was the late 90s. They won the national championship wow. within that little time frame. And, uh, and I remember seeing all the fans all mixed in together. <laughs> and it was an alien concept because yeah. I'd just grown up with segregation, the yes. segregation of fans. Um, so once police then were able to control it in the stadiums, mm -hmm. it, it spilled outside and it, and it became, uh, there'd be organized meetups 
yeah. you know, so many hours before kick up, kick off in this abandoned area or this this desolate yeah. piece of land. They and have they, leaders they'd and fight. everything. Yeah, yeah, they'd have leaders. They'd fight, <laughs> and then they'd go to the game, and sometimes they'd meet up afterwards. And sometimes, if it was you know a particular particular teams didn't like each other or groups of supporters that mm-hmm. that traditionally had tension. What's the it, worst it, you've it, ever? heard of or have you actually been in close proximity yeah. to any of this hooliganism yeah. yeah what's that a like more recent one i remember being uh, so two answers to that one i remember one time being really scared as i think i was 12 or 13 and i'd gone to aston villa versus coventry city aston villa is in birmingham and coventry city is right mm-hmm. next to birmingham they're somewhat of a rival villa are traditionally a better team but they're both in the top division at mm-hmm. this point and after the game, Aston Villa's main rival is Birmingham City. Those games can be really ugly. And I've been in one of those where it was re- when Birmingham got promoted to the Premier League after many years out of it. And we went to the first game at Villa Park mm-hmm. and it was really tense and there was some fighting afterwards. But the first time was this Coventry game. And I'm, I had to get the train back to one of my relatives' house. And I'm on this side of the platform. There's two train facts. And this platform here, all the Coventry fans were getting the train the other way. Yeah. And there was some other Aston Villa fans on this platform. They were arguing back and forth, and they started throwing rocks and coins at each other. Mm-hmm. And the police had to come and try and push them back. Um, and it was, you know, for a 12, 13 year old, that was <laughs> it was quite scary. But then in 2016, um, it, it, the European Championships were in France, mm-hmm. and with a friend of mine, I was at the England versus Russia game. Um, went to Wales games and England games at this tournament and it was England's first game it was against Russia it was in Marseille and Marseille's got a beautiful port so the water's here the boats are here and there's three sides of little cafes and restaurants eateries Um, and we were sitting in one of these just having some lunch and there was an evening it was a kickoff was later that evening and there was lots of people that was packed I've got video of it on my phone or an older phone that's at home and Immediately, we, or, or not immediately, sorry, out of nowhere, we saw a series of police cars pull up right outside of us. Oh. And then immediately after that, across the, the port, it was on a diff, like we were on this side and it was over there, so probably, probably just to that other stand, the, the, the bleachers on that side of the stadium. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw a massive smoke bomb go off and cannons and then bottles started going and this it sort of erupted yes. out of nowhere. And it was all English fans that were there just enjoying the atmosphere or not. They were just there experiencing the atmosphere. And then they were somewhat ambushed by Russian fans who came down these these little alleyways that yes. led to this port. And it was a really ugly scene, obviously glass flying everywhere. I think one person died. There were lots of serious injuries. And it, it just blew us away because, again, it was 2016. Hooliganism, right, right. You'd, you know, they, the, the authorities are continually attempting to to eradicate it. Could Are never... they really, Dr. Sayers? Yeah. Because it seems to be a part of the culture. Yeah. Are, are teams being held liable for these, I guess, outbursts and stuff? Like, does soccer really want to clean up is my question. I think, I think they do. The question is, how much are they going to invest in that? Right. Um, because the counter-argument is, well, soccer creates this, but it's the, 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 the expense of the policing and the, mm-hmm. that... That's on the city. So obviously there's, there's, there's um, relationships between the clubs and the national teams and the police forces, but ultimately they're separate entities. Mm-hmm. 
Because um, we see here in American they, sports, if somebody throws something on the basketball court, they may get a lifetime ban from that arena. Yeah, they do that. They do bans. They've, they've gone through a series of steps to attempt to control it. But it, the, the evolution uh, yes. of the concept is typically stays ahead of the authorities, if you like. Or when, when the authorities catch up, they evolve further. Okay. So, so it, England national team had a very bad reputation for a while. And they would travel abroad and create problems, smash places up, yeah. get into fights. Euro 2000, they did it in Charleroi in Belgium. In Dublin in 1995, a game had to be called after, I think, 20-something minutes because the England fans were throwing debris down onto yeah. the Irish fans below. Um, it, Italy 1990, there was trouble. So police then began banning people but also confiscating passports. So if mm -hmm. England had an away game next week... You may have to go and turn your passport into your local police station this weekend, and you go back and get it a week later. Okay. So you can't travel because you had a ban. Wow. Yes. Okay. So, so they, they are taking steps. Yeah, they, they take steps of that regard. There are people that have been banned for life, banned mm. for a year. Um, that Again, that was one of the reasons that contributed to the organized meetups outside of stadiums. Yes. Doctor says, you ever thrown a punch in the name of fandom? Nope. No? no absolutely. <laughs> I've never actually been involved in it where yeah. I've been attacked. Right. I've just been in the proximity and, and witnessed it. When we went overseas, we saw two s soccer games. Yeah. Doctor says, I'm going to be 100% honest with you. I had my head on a swivel. Yeah. Like, I was, I was a little concerned about this. <laughs> You know, this fandom, this hooliganism. I was looking at my, my, my shirt, make sure I had on neutral colors. Yeah. Like, it was really a concern. Yeah. Is, is it a concern for you attending games, perhaps with your children and stuff? Or? Um, I, no, I wouldn't say a concern. I think it's so sporadic now okay. um, that it's, it's not common. Okay. There's still a chance. But I, I think, so again, as technology has is, is advanced and progressed, yeah. At a, a very fast rate, uh, hooligans and hooligan groups would use that as ways to communicate and ways to evade authorities. Um, but authorities have used technology themselves to yeah. attempt to continue to, to keep up with them. CCTV cameras and the like and, yeah. and monitoring online forums and chats. So as technology, my point is, as technology has increased and, and communication has increased, you could do research prior to a game and have an idea <laughs> as to whether it's a safe place or okay. perhaps a not so safe place. Um, but there is always the chance always that something chance. could spark it, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. And one of the interesting things, when you think of hooliganism, you may assume, oh, these are the dregs of society. No, these might be some people with high standing, like doctors and lawyers yeah. and accountants out there fighting and stuff. Absolutely. There's an <laughs> element of sort of fight club to that. Yes. You know? if, you, if you have you know, a certain societal role, Monday to Friday, even a, a fairly high one, so to speak, as you say, lawyer, doctor, etc., yeah. is it's somewhat of a release on the weekend and somewhat of a, uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> a, 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 a release, I guess. But it's, sure. it's, it's an interesting one, for, for sure. For sure, for sure. Dr. Says, one of my biggest takeaways when we went overseas, uh, we were in Germany, I forget the stadium, I think it might be HSC Birth, I forget the stadium. We were on a tour, and the tour guy was explaining that the fans own this team. Yeah. Now, I was quiet for the whole trip. I think that might have been the first time I spoke up. I said, excuse me? I said, you mean to tell me there's not some white guy in a suit up here that owns this whole thing? They said, no, not in the Bundesliga. Yeah. There's a rule called 50 plus 1 that ensures that the fans yeah. 
owns the team, mm -hmm. which is very different than the American model where you have superstar owners like Jerry Jones and the Dallas Cowboys, Mark Cuban and the Dallas Mavericks, infamous guys like Robert Sarva, who just got in trouble, who owns the Phoenix Suns. Yeah. The fans own these teams, Dr. Says. Can you please help us understand what is this 50 plus one rule? What does it mean that the fans own these teams? Uh, so it's unique to Germany, this model, mm -hmm. and it's got many benefits. The, but also globally, some would argue drawbacks. Okay. I, I think it's wonderful. The, so the fan ownership groups have a significant stake in how the club is run. Um, and they, decisions that impact the direction of the club, yes. they have a voice. They have members that sit with the board, so to speak, that, that, that is a seat at the table um, in the discussions that, that involve the direction of the club. It's still very much community-based in Germany, the, the role of football in society. Okay. To a different, in a different way and to a greater extent than it is in other European countries that do have the ownership model that, we're, that, we're, that you're referring to. There's a, Chelsea's new owner. So Chelsea, uh, their previous owner is Roman Abramovich, okay. Russian oligarch. Um, and he was forced to sell the club within the last year because of his ties to Putin. And the British government were going to seize all Abramovich's assets, mm -hmm. which include Chelsea, because he owned them. Mm -hmm. So he sold them. And Americans, uh, Chelsea, known as an American guy, and he made some interesting comments in the last couple of weeks in terms of what he thinks about the Premier League and, and show that he doesn't really understand it. It's been an interesting adjustment for him, I think. Okay. Um, and the suggesting things like a, an East versus West All-Star game or mm -hmm. North East South All-Star game, I think, like they're having baseball, but there's just no place for it in the calendar. And right. because the sport operates differently, it, it, it wouldn't be a welcome addition to the calendar. Okay. Um, anyway, it's side, sidebar. Um, so... So he now is the owner of Chelsea. Liverpool are actually owned by uh, John Henry and the, the same consortium that owns the Boston Red Sox. Mm -hmm. um, so there's more and more American owners coming into the game, but they, they do have this ownership model. Um, there are British owners. There are, uh, uh, there are, there are um, owners from the Middle East of certain clubs. But Germany is different in the sense that none of those types of ownership groups or owners could go and take over a German club right. because of the model. 50 plus one refers to at least 51% of the team being owned by, again, the fans. Yeah, so they can't, so no other owner can have majority ownership. But I'll say, when you say owned by the fans, does that mean, like, who makes the decision on who gets traded? Who makes the decision on who hires the, the, the coach? Like, how do the fans impact those decisions? There'll be, there'll be a representative of the fans on the board and the board will either will delegate that responsibility typically so in terms of making decisions to, to trade players and to buy and sell players the model can vary from club to club it might be the technical it might be the sporting director it might be the head coach themselves it might be a little team of those two or maybe a, a slightly bigger team but there'll be people delegated and appointed to make those type of decisions but who makes those decisions will be will be 
will be arranged, will be uh, dictated by the board, and the fans will have representation on that. They board. can vote on that board. Yeah, a, mem a member that represents the fans group will vote on that board. And is this similar to like political elections here in, in America? They have a certain tenure, four years or so. Or if the fans become unhappy, what uh, course of action can they take with the board member representing them? They can. That, vo that board member will be their voice. I think it, it varies slightly, slightly from club to club. But if they're unhappy with the board member, how can they get them out of it? Or I don't know that. Okay. Yeah, that would be that would be an interesting one to look at. The uh, one of the key benefits for those fans is ticket prices. And, and they're typically all on board with this. Not, not just the fans groups, but the other owners of the club, the other members of those boards um, that make up the ownership committee of the club. That season tickets are uh, much cheaper than yeah. ev everywhere else. Bundesliga yeah. has some of the highest attendance in the world, their league. Yeah. And is it because of this model and keeping tickets price lows and keeping the fans in mind and everything that they do? Yeah, I think I think it's a combination of factors. Ticket prices is a massive one. Um, you'll typically hear that at the bigger clubs in other countries in Europe, the regular fan, which is a bit of a cliche, but it's the football at its roots was working class, the 1800s to the early 1900s, and it was very community based. A lot of the players that played for a local team would be from that area, or the fans obviously would be from that area, and they go and support the team. Um, as as the game exploded, 70s, 80s, at the, uh, the start of that, but, but specifically from the 90s onwards, as the game exploded and became this multi-billion-dollar industry, opportunistic business people mm -hmm. identified that and realised that soccer was a a vehicle to to make a lot of money. You could charge higher prices and fans would pay it. Mm -hmm. Players could demand more money and clubs would pay it. TV contracts got higher and higher and now they're in the billions. So um, everything about the game became more expensive. Right. And so you hear that quite a lot, particularly in Britain, that the fans have been, the, the, the fans that, the, the, the demographic that used to attend matches is now very different than it is now. Right. Um, and that's not the case in Germany. They, because of, because of the fans' involvement in the running of the clubs, mm -hmm. but also other members involved in the running of the club also acknowledge that the fans are very important and an important piece, of, uh, important members of the community. Yes. And the club is there for them, and have agreed to keep ticket prices low. The cost Bayern Munich are one of the biggest clubs in the world, certainly the biggest club in Germany and the most successful club in Germany. The ticket price difference between Bayern Munich and, say, Arsenal and Chelsea in England mm -hmm. or, or Paris Saint-Germain in France is very significant. Yes. It's, and and, and, and German, German football has very much retained its community identity through schemes like that. It, 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 it has. And again, they, they experience some of the best ticket sales in the world when yeah. it comes to a, a football league. They have some of the highest uh, viewership because things are done with the fan in mind. Yeah. How does that compare to what we see in the American sports where a lot of these teams are just run by an oligarch? Everything is run through one guy. What, what, what do you think of that, that model? The... And you see some guys do nefarious things with that power. Yes, you have. And there's obviously no place for that in mm. any walk of life, in any business. And, and in any sport. Um, the, 
within that, as you say, within that structure and that model, there are different approaches to it. Mm -hmm. It's Arthur Blank would be a, an example in Atlanta. Atlanta Falcons. Atlanta Falcons and Atlanta United. Okay. Um, and it, he, he announced and followed through with the subsidization of concessions. So Atlanta United, for the first, the MLS season runs March to November. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the NFL season runs September to February. Because when the uh, Atlanta United were created, expansion team, um, and were due to start play, I think it was 2017, they were still building Mercedes-Benz Stadium mm -hmm. in the spring. That was due to open for the Falcons in the fall. But they're going to share that stadium. They do share that stadium now. At that point, the plan was that they would go on and share that stadium. But Atlanta United needed somewhere to play from March onwards. So they played all their games at Georgia Tech's football stadium. Mm -hmm. I remember going to the opening game, Atlanta United versus New York Red Bull. Wow. And, um, and the fan community in Atlanta is excellent. They, now Mercedes-Benz Stadium's open. They get upwards of 50,000 to some games, mm -hmm. which, which is on a par with a lot of the major European stadiums. And the they've embraced Arthur Blank and he's embraced them and he's subsidized all the concessions at the stadium so you go to some stadiums you know for, for, a, for a piece of food pretty or for penny. a beer or a drink it's pretty expensive uh, it's not the case in Atlanta because he agreed to keep those prices low for the fans mm -hmm. um, which they appreciated and reciprocated with their support um, so there is there obviously is, still is some good that can be done in that in those mm -hmm. ownership system, uh, structures right. but it is it's up to the one person as to whether he wants to do that or not. <laughs> now, what are the people that are opposed to the 50 plus one rule saying? What arguments are they making? I, I believe they're saying like not enough money is being made in some of these places. Yeah, they're saying it's holding the clubs back mm -hmm. because they, the more money the club makes, the more they can spend on quality players, mm -hmm. um, on better players, should I say, and the more they can then compete at the highest level. But if, you, if the club is run this way and our objective is to keep costs low, one of our objectives is to keep costs low, then that reduces the amount of money coming back into the club. Right. Yeah. Bayern Munich have, have sort of broken that mold somewhat because they have started charging higher prices for certain things. And they have pushed the boundaries of the 50 plus one rule and even operate outside of it in some ways. Um, and they have obviously managed to still compete at the very highest level. They've won the Champions League yes. several times. Um, but even, even then you still hear that argument that Bayern Munich could have even more revenue if they were to, to be operated in the same way that, that say, some of the London clubs are. No. But uh, that would be the primary pushback, was that, 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 that the game is moving forward and this system isn't. Mm -hmm. But it, it is... It's still very much there for the fans, yes. which is wonderful. Yes. Uh, like with anything, positives and negatives. Yes, right? 100%. Let's look ahead, Dr. Sayers. 2022 World Cup taking place in Qatar. Now, Qatar won the bid to host this event back in 2010. Please tell me your initial reaction when you learned that Qatar had won the World Cup bid. It was certainly interesting because the it, it obviously raises a lot of questions. Not a traditional soccer country, but FIFA have always maintained that 
part of their objective. But why, why is that? So please, because I didn't know it was a big deal until I was in grad school. Yeah. Why is Qatar not considered a traditional soccer country? Why were there questions raised when Qatar had won the bid? Um, so the, the, the initial questions were, how did they get it? They must, they must be corrupt. They must have paid someone off. They announced Qatar and Russia at the same time, mm -hmm. Russia 2018, Qatar 2022. Um, several other countries have bid, England had bid, Australia had bid. Um, and the, so yeah, so obviously, you know, to go back to your question about why is it not a traditional soccer country, or, you know, they don't have a, a renowned league there. Okay. The national team hasn't, <laughs> doesn't really you know hasn't because it's, it's actually I mean it's a small population right. and the, the game's not very developed in that country but FIFA have long maintained that part of their objective is to grow the game in countries where it's not it's why the why initially it came to USA in '94 uh, South Africa in 2010 yes they they are more and more now taking the game to areas where there's a an opportunity for growth which is wonderful it's a game for all you know. Mm. Um, now the climate was the World Cup is always uh, has always been operated in the summer, May, June, June July. Yeah, um, obviously the temperature in Qatar at that time is very very high, mm -hmm. so there was question raised about that. How would, are the players aren't going to be safe playing in that heat, playing yes. in those conditions? Um, and so the the decision was made to move it to the winter. So now it starts late November, ends late December, yes. which has never happened before. Mm -hmm. um, it's caused massive disruption to the global international calendar for football because the, typically the World Cup's in the summer because the leagues run from August to May. Yes. So now you've got to pause these Soccer leagues. around the globe, basically. Exactly. Not only pausing soccer around the globe, but because soccer has become such a multi-billion dollar industry, you're pausing this business model right in its middle, in mm -hmm. the middle of it, and and running the World Cup. Uh, ultimately, they went ahead with the decision. They found ways to start somewhat earlier, change the cal for, of, for the leagues, mm -hmm. change the calendar so you have this break in the middle. Um, but that caused uproar then, particularly within the countries that had bid and lost right. because they said, well, we thought we were bidding on a summer World Cup. Mm -hmm. If we had the opportunity to bid on a winter World Cup, we either wouldn't have spent the millions of dollars that it cost us to put the bid together right. or we'd have changed the bid so we could suit a winter World Cup. And so FIFA were threatened with all these lawsuits. Mm -hmm. But what Qatar, the Qatar Association did was as soon as they got as soon as they won the bid, another, another, to go back to your original question, why was their uproar? So there's no stadiums in Qatar, <laughs> or certainly not enough to, to host a World Cup. A massive event. And there wasn't like infrastructure, there wasn't enough hotels, there wasn't a, a tra transport systems in place. Yeah. Um, and, and so, but because they're very, a very rich country, they, were, they had the money on hand to, to build. To build. And so they immediately began construction on stadiums, on subway systems, um, A, to, to build them, but B, to be able to say to FIFA, if someone sued FIFA and said that the, the World Cup shouldn't be in Qatar, right. Qatar would come back and counter sue FIFA and say, 
well, we've started all this, right. all these construction projects because you told us the World Cup was going to be here. So it, it put FIFA at that point in, in a difficult position. But ultimately, uh, it was settled that it would remain in Qatar. Right. And we're going, to, <clears throat> we're going to have this World Cup. This is essentially all going to be in one city. I think that there's the biggest distance between two stadiums, I think it's 45 minutes. Wow. Which wow. is typically, compare that to what we, we were talking about with the USA when you've got games in New York and games in Los Angeles. Yes. Um, the Brazil World Cup was massive. That crossed time zones. Doctor says with, with Qatar, there were reports that Qatar possibly paid out $200 million in bribes to, to win this bid. Yeah. I guess they paid off some FIFA executives. That are the, that's the reports. And then when you look at a place who doesn't have a, a, a tradition with soccer, didn't even have the facilities in place to host the event, it does look like some corruption may have went down. The, to my knowledge, we don't have any evidence of no. cor corruption that did, but in terms of that particular awarding of the World Cup, yes. but bigger picture... We do have proof that corruption has existed within FIFA before. Yes. One of the books we covered in the class, or in a later class. Um, Sepp Blatter, who was the head of FIFA for a long time, and Michel Platini, who was a former French player, who was head of UEFA for a long time, both received bans from football because they found a, an unethical deal mm -hmm. in the millions of dollars between those two. So we know that it has existed before within FIFA. Uh, so it does certainly raise the question that did it exist there? Yeah, yeah. We don't know. Qatar started to build facilities to host this world's event. Yeah. And there's some controversy there too, Dr. Sayers. Mm -hmm. The treat the human rights issues. There's been all type of reports of human rights issues. There's been uh, reports that possibly 6,500 migrant workers have died yeah. uh, since these facilities started being built in 2010. Uh, the stories are they've brought individuals from England, Nepal, Bangladesh, uh, promised them jobs. Now, they have jobs building these infrastructures, but there's no housing, there's lack of food, they're not being paid. Some people have had their, their uh, passports confiscated, so they couldn't even go back home if they wanted. Mm -hmm. uh, how do we reconcile, you know, sitting down and enjoying this event that's about to take place but knowing some of this stuff may have taken place to uh, behind the scenes. Yeah, it's 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 certainly a um, a a point of contention and a very much a topic of discussion. The obviously there's a denial coming from that part of the world that For these sure. things have occurred. Mm -hmm. uh, there are organisations that monitor human rights issues around the world that are claiming it did happen or still. It, it has happened and is in some cases still happening. Um, so it's certainly a question mark. Uh, I don't know uh, of the evidence. Right. Um, that I, or I'm not aware of it. Um, mm -hmm. But the that entire region has had those questions asked of it previously. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's certainly a... Whether more will... more more proof and evidence will come out later yeah. on we'll see but yeah. i know that i know i'm aware of the conversations yeah there's also questions about the culture in qatar you know where alcohol is not allowed you know it's a, it's a muslim country same-sex relationships are not welcome but they are making concessions they're going to be areas where 
I guess fans can enjoy alcohol, mm -hmm. you know, but public drunkenness, like it's not allowed. Same sex relationships, uh, 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 like you can go to jail behind stuff like that. So it's going to be different. You got people come from all over the globe, different types of people. How do you think that's going to play out? I think there's going to there's going to be such a volume of mm -hmm. people, such an influx um, that. Policing it sounds like it would be a challenge mm -hmm. because there'd be just so many people in such a, sh a small area, relatively speaking. I don't know how it's going to go. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it would appear there's going to have to be some sort of cooperation from both sides yes. in the sense that people traveling there should without doubt respect the traditions and the cultures mm -hmm. of the country to which they're traveling. That should always happen, I think. Um, from Qatar's part, they wanted to host the World Cup and they agreed to host the World Cup yeah. after it was offered by FIFA. Um, and I think when, they, when you do that, there's an understanding that you will be, or there will be attendees from all over the globe from very different cultures. And um, there, there are some themes or some behaviors, non-nefarious behaviors that, that occur when you do, when, yes. when that amount of fans do get together to follow their national team. Drinking alcohol being one of them, for example, which I, th I think that's why we've seen the, you know, the bending from, from the Qatar authorities right. in that regard. Um, so I, I don't know how it's going right. to pan out. It's going to be very interesting to see. Do you plan on attending? Yes. Ah, nice. How long do you think you plan on being out there? 12 days. Okay. Well, I'll be 10 days there. I'll leave on the 18th. Of November. How do you schedule it? You you check and see like the initial pools. Is it the first? You try to be there for the first bit of it, or the end, yeah. or in the middle. I go for the first bit. The okay. World Cups of Attendance being for the first bit because obviously later on is where you get the absolute the the, the best games. Yeah. Right. The you know the sem the quarterfinals, semifinals, and finals. That's when you'll get the the best teams in the world mm -hmm. playing against each other for the ultimate prize. What I like going about the early part is there's fans from all over the world there. Yes. So you get to experience all those different fan groups and those different cultures um, in, that, in that short space of time. Mm -hmm. And it's, that's even going to be even more pronounced in Qatar because it's all in one place. Yeah. So in, in, you know, in the World Cup in Brazil in 2014, in France 2016, you're traveling across the country to various games, passing fans on the way. You, know, you, may, have, you may be in a, in a particular let's say Paris for mm -hmm. a game and the game you're watching is tomorrow. So there's yeah. two sets of fans, but there may be another game there two days later. So those fans are already in and it's, uh, it's just a wonderful festival. Anybody um, in particular culture. you're looking forward to seeing? Yes. So Wales have only ever qualified for one world cup before this, which was 1958. Wow. So, so they're in this world cup. Well, the first game is USA v Wales. Okay. So I had some tickets from the FIFA lottery, but I wasn't sure if I was going to go or not. Mm -hmm. Wales had a playoff to qualify for the World Cup. The way the European qualification works is the winner of the qualification group goes automatically, and all the second place teams go through a playoff system. Wales finished second in their qualifying group. And so they were going to go into a playoff. The playoff games were, due, were scheduled for March. The draw for the World Cup was early May. Mm -hmm. So typically when... You buy tickets before you even know who's who's going to play each other yet. Mm -hmm. 
And then that's so like, let me expand on that. Ticket sales start before the draw, before right. you and you will get the ticket will say A1 versus A3 in Johnson City on this date and time. But you don't know who A1 and A3 are yet because the draw is not till May. So we had some tickets from that. It's a lottery first and then is a first come, first served ticket sales phase. So we had some tickets. Wales had to play off against Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Wales had to play Scotland and then play Ukraine. Yeah. Um, and so sorry, sorry. Wales had to play. I think it was Austria and Scotland played Ukraine, and the winner of those two games would go to the World Cup. Wales win their game, but Scotland for Ukraine has to get postponed because of the war. Right. So, so that game was rescheduled for the first week of June, the first of June. And the Wales's game was scheduled for the 5th of June, Wales versus the winner of Scotland, Ukraine. The draw happens early May. So almost all teams are confirmed, except the winner of this playoff. USA have been placed into into a group with England and Iran, Mm -hmm. and the fourth team in that group is the winner of that European playoff. So we had the ticket that says USA versus European playoff winner, which I knew could be Wales. And it's the two countries that I love, the two countries that I spent my life. I grew up in Wales and I love it. And I moved to America and I absolutely love it. Both countries have given me so much more than I could ever, more debt than I could ever repay to them. Um, I did all my coaching education with the Welsh Football Association. I got a lot of friends at the Welsh Football Association. I used to work with the Welsh Football mm-hmm. Association. And um, the, the, so the draw had already been made. Ukraine beat Scotland. So it's Wales versus Ukraine for a place in the World Cup. Mm-hmm. And now, obviously, there's a lot of sympathy for Ukraine at this point because of the, the atrocities that they're experiencing sure. at home. For sure. Um, Wales win the game 1-0. I booked the flight that night. <laughs> I said, I can't, <laughs> you I can't. can't miss Wales. Wales have never been in a World Cup in my lifetime. They're expanding the next World Cup, which is going to be in the USA, Mexico, and, and um, uh, Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're going from 32 teams to 48 teams. Mm-hmm. So chances are Wales will qualify for that. Right. But this is the first time they've been in a World Cup in my entire life. And they're playing my home country. The two passports I have, yes. US and uh I thought I can't miss that, so I booked the flight that night. Doctor says I'm excited for you. Cheers, man. Yeah. What was it like watching that game, watching them win one 0 It was incredible. It was so tense. It yeah. was so unbelievably tense. So much at stake, and and obviously, you know, it was difficult because the entire world was, apart from Russia, was supporting Ukraine, <laughs> yeah. understandably so. And uh, it was difficult. It was tense. But as soon as that was confirmed, then the celebrations began, and uh, and I booked that flight. Very cool. Well, what kid are you gonna wear? I'm neutral that day. Okay. <laughs> I'm neutral that day. I hope they both go. I hope the games are tie and they both go through because the, they're in groups of four and the top two from each group go through to the next round. Okay. I hope both Wales and USA go through. That'd be cool. That'd be cool. Now I got a rule for Wales. Uh, there you go. For, for Dr. Says. Yeah. Uh, a few more things before we get out of here. Dr. Says, sometimes I want to follow soccer. But I feel like it's leagues all over the place. Oh, this is a big game. This is the Premier League. This is a <laughs> classical. I don't know where to begin. When it comes to the NBA, you can bet that's the top league in the world. And June is going to be the NBA Finals. That's the world's champion right there. Like, 
what advice would you give to somebody that's looking to like follow the best soccer in the world? Like, where where is it? The the best soccer. I think it's in Europe. The best club soccer's in Europe. Um, the top teams in the top league. The typically they're called the big five leagues, which is mm-hmm. England, Italy, Germany, France, and Spain. Mm-hmm. So you've got Barcelona, Real Madrid in Spain, Chelsea. Manchester City, Manchester United in England, uh, Bayern Munich in Germany, Borussia Dortmund in Germany, Inter Milan, Juventus, AC Milan in Italy, Paris Saint-Germain in France. So those teams typically have the world's best players playing for them. So to watch the world's best players, you'd watch those leagues. Brazil and the most successful national team, Mm -hmm. they've won the most World Cups, five, the vast majority of Brazilian players, of the top-level Brazilian players, are playing for European teams as well. But in terms of watching the international game, it's always good to watch Brazil. Um, as it is, some of the traditionally top international performing teams, Germany, for example, um, I mentioned Brazil, Argentina would be in that bracket, Netherlands, the France, obviously. But for me, how I would answer that question yes. to you, I think soccer at its heart is community and identity. Mm -hmm. And I would recommend for you, it may not be the world's best soccer, Mm -hmm. but you got New York Red Bull or NYCFC up there. And and obviously the US national team. Because there's an identity there, there's a connection. Um, And that, that has always been a part of the game for me. It's evolved in different ways over the decades. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, it used to be a, a working class sport where the, both the players and the fans would be from that local town and it would be a genuine rivalry with the next town over. Uh, ironically, college sport is close to how soccer used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, because whether you're from the region or you attend the university uh, and then you support that team. And then, you know, the, the Duke, North Carolina basketball rivalries, the the... Tennessee, locally, Tennessee, Kentucky, or Tennessee, uh, Florida football rivalries. Mm. Um, They're, to me, reminiscent of how I remember soccer decades ago. Now it's it's much more globalized. You know, at at those top grounds on any given week, tourists will come in to attend the games. um, And the demographic of the stadium Mm-hmm. is now very different, much more diverse. So uh, it's evolved, it's changed, but the best soccer to watch would be those top European teams. Um, on the women's side, the best soccer to watch is right here. Uh-huh. in uh, The NWSL is a fantastic league. Some of the world's best players play in the, in the NWSL. Um, Gotham, up in uh, North New Jersey. Okay. Um, O.L. Uh, Reign, out in, uh, on the West Coast. Um, got some great teams in California. Uh, the closest one to here is the NC Courage. They're over in Raleigh. Okay. But uh, the best women's sport, it's best right women's here. soccer is right here. Right here in uh, America. You are someone born in Wales. You see, you, you, you've experienced soccer, uh, European soccer. Then you came here as a college student, competed in the NCAA, coached in the NCAA. If you could change one thing about how soccer is done here in America, one thing that would put us in a direction of being a world power like Brazil, like France, uh, what would it be? 
I think for the women's game, increasing the revenue to pay the players more, to pay them what they deserve. Okay. It's moving that direction. Mm -hmm. Trinity Rodman, player I was very fortunate to work with the US national team, signed the first million dollar contract in the NWSL. That was last year. Um, but there are several players in the league that are deserving of that. Mm -hmm. US soccer, um, and if you saw the celebration recently after one of their games, um, because they'd, re they'd, just re they'd just signed the CBA that guarantees equal pay, which they've been fighting for for a long time. And they have it now, which is wonderful. On the men's side, the... We need that academy. We, yeah, we need <laughs> some sort of system yeah. that, that prepares players outside of the NCAA, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Some and that's a that's a blanket statement. It's yeah. a very broad statement, and I don't know the details of how that would, how that, how we could arrive at that point. But for the reasons we discussed earlier, yeah, um, and the and the the sort of reasons Klinsman was referring yeah. to in some of the changes he proposed as the technical director, um, then I, I think something that, that yeah. develops players in that way would be would be beneficial. And one of the understated parts of it, and I mentioned INF, Clairefontaine, and France. They train the coaches, too. Mm -hmm. So as the coaches go out into the different neighborhoods, everyone is getting kind of the same quality of, of teaching. Yeah. You know, and the country is being raised up as one. I asked Dr. Brian Johnson this uh, question. Which part of the ETSU Global Sport Leadership Program are you most proud of? The graduates. People... That we, we've, we've been so fortunate to have an incredible collection of individuals. Mm -hmm. the, the, the different cohorts that we've had have been, um, they've been diverse, they've been professional, they've been elite. Mm -hmm. And the, obviously there, there are several objectives of the Global Sport Leadership Program um, that have existed since we devised the idea and that we've used to guide us. Um, uh, one of those being that it's a terminal degree, but it works alongside a professional career. Mm -hmm. So you're able to complete the program while you're still progressing in the sporting world in some form. Um, and then the degree can assist you, the, work, the material can assist you in your current role. This is our objectives now. Mm -hmm. the, the material could assist you in your current role could assist you in your career progression yes. and your, the projection of where you want your career to go. Um, but also, because our, our candidates are current sport professionals, mm -hmm. what they can offer the program and, and contribute to class discussions and to, to projects right. and to the trip itself, or the trips you know, themselves, there's, like, there's two of them, <laughs> non-COVID yeah. years, um, is is extraordinary and it's very with every group it's slightly different it's unique mm -hmm. and I, I i love that part i'm proud of that part of it that we're able to bring all these professionals together that are all can all contribute in different ways and they all benefit from networking with each other for sure, for uh, sure. and then and then to you know to to see after graduation what the candidates go on and do mm -hmm. that's the the great source of pride for me Sounds good. You never know. You know, I mean? you get a graduate that uh, invites you to be on their podcast. You, you never know, know man. Yeah. <laughs> Doctor says you've accomplished a lot thus far. We talked about your career as a player, uh, 
academia. You're working with the U.S. Women's National Team. You've coached at the NCAA level. What are some of your career aspirations still? I'm sure there's a lot on your to-do list. You know, I've always appreciated your energy and your zest for the spoil. What are some things you, you're still looking forward to doing and accomplishing? I would very much like to be part of the hosting of a World Cup. Um, probably more so on a, on a management and administration side mm-hmm. than the technical side with a team. Um, I very much enjoy that aspect of it. But the opportunities, I think, for the 2026 World Cup, Mm -hmm. that's going to be here, Men's World Cup, um, there's been discussions about the women um, or or U.S. soccer bidding to host the Women's World Cup in the near future. If that materializes, obviously, we'd be hosting that World Cup again, which would be fantastic. We're going to host the Rugby World Cup, I think, in 2031. Okay. The Olympic Games is coming to LA, I think, 2028. Mm-hmm. So for America to host these massive global events, I would love to be a part of that in some way, working with either a host city or a host association in terms of the the planning and implementation of hosting a major world event. Okay. And then I'd also like to work for FIFA or UEFA or CONCACAF, which again is the the region governing body for here, uh, in terms of their implementation and growth of the game internationally. Um, Whether that means becoming a match delegate, becoming involved in some other management or administration role, so I could contribute to the growth of the game globally. I would love to do that. Sounds good. Sounds good. Dr. Say, where can people, I guess, read some of the work you've published? Uh, Then you contribute to a book? Yeah, we had a book come out in 2020, I believe. Yeah, yeah, and it just, what was the it, name? Uh, it's called Soccer Anatomy. Okay, and it was uh, it's initially designed for once players progress and they get to a certain level, whether it's a professional club academy, whether it's a, a college environment, particularly the Power Fives at the high level, they'll all have strength and conditioning and physical coaches in place. Right, which is great. Lower down the pyramid grassroots level, high school level, etc. Coaches don't necessarily have that experience, nor do they have the resources to be able to get experienced staff in those fields. So it's designed as a resource to host, host those people. So they can educate themselves and educate players on that aspect of the game so the players can, can develop on a, along an appropriate path physically to the point where they integrate with a team or a program that has full-time physical staff and they're better prepared then to to continue to develop themselves physically. It actually just came out in in French. There's a mm-hmm. French edition. Um, I think the way the publishers operate is uh, if there's a demand from a certain region or a certain country, enough of a demand, if that demand crosses a certain threshold, they'll produce that book in that language. And we've just had it produced in French, which was, oh. we're very proud of. So uh, that's a good one. Very um, cool. Yeah. And then uh, lot, I've been fortunate enough to contribute to... So lots of soccer-related articles that um, that can be found in various academic journals. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. You active on social media at all? Somewhat. Yeah. Somewhat. So if people want to get in touch with you, how would they do so? Um, uh, my Instagram account is Adam L Sayers mm-hmm. at Adam L Sayers. Um, similar for Twitter. So uh, yeah, if if anyone would like to 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 reach out and just discuss the game or sport leadership in general, I'd be, I'd be thrilled to hear from anyone. Sounds good. Dr. Sayers, I appreciate you a great deal. It's more than a pleasure. I sincerely appreciate it and, uh, and continue the great work you're doing. This is a wonderful, uh, 
a wonderful resource for, for people to learn and educate and network. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you, man. That was Dr. Adam Sayers. I'm William Holly. It's WBH Radio. Out here. Thank you.